Welcome. Have a seat. We hope that you're ready to be enticed by the drink. We at the Honda Tiki Bar welcome one and all to unwind and share in this stellar mix. Captain Mediocre is open. Tonight's special is a bit on the more fundamental variety, so if you're fancying a more potent drink, then perhaps this blend may not be what you seek. But I say it may be the one you needed and not necessarily know it. Today's subject, freedom of speech. I've been pondering this for some time now. I think it's a safe assumption on how we feel about freedom of speech. For those of you who are probably in the of this topic, I don't blame you. Heck, you're listening to a podcast right now where my friends and I discuss basically anything with little to no remorse for the aftermath. Though, at the very least, you understand enough and agree to an extent about it. We hear this all over the place. I think it's safe to say that it's a topic people find either frustratingly boring or zealously passionate. It comes to us no surprise that it's at least a heated debate, albeit one we may grow rather weary of reevaluating. You see, from both sides of the argument, we hear that either people shouldn't be punished for speaking their minds on matters, especially in public, in terms of in regards to government, politics, and all and everything in between. Or the idea that words have consequences to their actions, and like any other right and privilege, we should be held accountable. Each one, I believe, shares merits, but I believe they both carry shortcomings as well. Let's start with the open freedom of speech. I think the idea of being able to speak just about what you want is one we all cherish to some degree. After all, why would you want to ever have your voice, your grievances, your ideas, and your passions be denied? I don't think anyone is actually looking to go to, here you go, I don't need my right to say what I want to do anymore, uh, you do what you will with it. It's such a simple principle that I feel we personally all take granted for. This is something that's not universal, though I, heart, I wholeheartedly believe it should be. The reality, though, it's that it isn't. Let's not mince things here, though. There are indeed dangers that come with this philosophy. With every privilege comes a responsibility not to abuse it. And the problem with open freedom of speech is the inevitability of evil, despicable rhetoric one that can influence or downright convince others of committing heinous acts and indeed service. I mean, look back at how speech has been used throughout human history, from the political avarice of power-hungry monarchs of old to the bastardized bigotry of modern fascist, communist, and socialist regimes shielded by empty promises and overly grandiose delusional utopias. Speech has been a weapon used throughout history to incite evils of unrivaled carnage. It's clear to see it's not something that should be used lightly. And whether we like it or not, our speech does make a difference. The pen is mightier than the sword for a reason. If it commands the sword, then its ink is the blood of the innocent, the pawns, and even the monsters 
manipulate them to their whim. Now, as mentioned earlier, it's apparent that the idea of a check should at the very least be considered. Humanity has a, its way with words, and with those words, we've laid waste to civilizations across the millennia. Speech used so devilishly has have shown their deadly potency. So without checks and balances, we risk something catastrophic, especially when we have basically the whole world's voice out there for all to hear. And without filter, we can deny that some of it is dangerous rhetoric. It's simply a probability game out there. One that folks who argue for some restriction of freedom of speech are keenly aware of. But where such destruction and ruin come from the brutal reality we've endured, we have also ignored the very thing free speech enshrines, the sanctuary of our existence. Keep in mind, we still, to this day, have nations across the planet that do not have freedom of speech. Much, through our, much throughout our history, in fact, we did not have such liberties for death reared its blood-stained scythe on all who dared to speak out of term. Even in my nation of the United States, such rights are being slowly eroded for the fear of potential danger on one end is being used to justify the dangers of another. When we are denied of speech due to consequences, either through our societal or government means, we lose ourselves to the void. To not desire to hear one's argument is one thing. To advocate to silence your critics is another. And yes, I say critics. To call it opposition, as some do, is to believe they are an obstacle that needs to be destroyed. And that is the opposite point of freedom of speech. For it grants us the ability to not only acknowledge the existence of one another, it has us safely converse and discuss ideas regardless of how controversial they may be. If we censor or remove just because something was said, we are taking the potential of that speech into consideration and not the speech itself. How can we know we are truly intelligent and mature enough to handle a subject if we omit it? How can we understand the moral, social, and political aspects of ideas and philosophies if we don't even dare to speak to them? Education means nothing if those topics can't be discussed. To be educated is to explore topics you may not entirely agree with. If we all believe one thing is good or bad, but refuse to teach it, it either becomes common knowledge or more troublesomely, it becomes lost knowledge. We humans are species that can't even remember much of its own history and thus repeat it often. Denying people the ability to speak freely without consequences is something those same tyrants used to push their horrid agendas. Ironically, it's the silencing of others that has also led to those same unimaginable horrors inflicted upon upon them throughout the ages. 
when you have no voice, no one may even know you exist, let alone that you're suffering. Freedom of speech restricted does exactly that. It restricts. And just like any restriction, it's the ones who place those restrictions are the ones who get to determine just how much is enough. And when more is needed, more is taken. To the point where you flat out remove the right entirely. And it's not a mere slippery slope. We have seen this happen. It has happened from days such as the French Revolution, who vouched for freedom of speech for all men, only for the reign of terror to strip that entirely for the full comfort and safety that it denied anyway. To the communist China of today that not only has complete governmental control of speech, but also sociological and economic aspects of the populace. Freedom of speech is not merely an idea. It's a way of life. It's a critical component in our society that separates us from the souls whose voices are now forever silent, as their eras are no more than the mere pages of textbooks. And to this day, remains our own kin, living as we speak, yet unable to. Unlike myself, who have been blessed to have such a right. Take due with what you will of this, because at this point, no side is without its merits and faults. But where we must draw the line, in my belief, is to be open-minded about what we hear. Listen to the argument and understand that both your argument and theirs have merit. Respect is earned through that mutual understanding. If both sides want what's best for themselves and wish no ill will of each other, a compromise, I'm sure, can be made in respect of both their own and each other's rights. To acknowledge their right of free speech is to acknowledge their existence. We at least deserve that. We should want that for one another. Our words have laid to ruin to many throughout our history, but we've also healed and built upon those scars as well. We are just as capable of creation and growth as we are of destruction. And all that starts with a single idea. One that at the end of the day, it's our legacy to either forge it or pass over. At the very least, we won't know the potency of its merits until we actually give it a listen. Your thoughts, my good sir? My thoughts on freedom of speech have been pretty multifaceted over the course of the years. It wasn't something that I genuinely put too much thought to as I was younger, as many often don't really think about that kind of thing. What I think... <clears throat> people start to really worry about freedom of speech is when one of two things occurs when they get into an age bracket where, where those particular rights come into focus. And that usually happens around the time that local and regional politics becomes something that one becomes concerned with or that those rights have been infringed upon at any given point in your life prior to that age bracket. I believe that there is a necessity for checks and balances, as you said, 
with within freedom of speech, but I don't believe that they need to be exercised in a draconian way in any meaningful capacity within a free society, especially the one that you and I dwell in. Now, that is on a governmental level. One of the major headaches that has always been something I've had to deal with is the slogan for people who want to limit free speech in any meaningful capacity. And you've heard it probably as much as I've heard it. Yeah, I could agree. Is freedom of speech is not freedom from consequences. And to a point that is correct, if you say something that is hurtful to somebody and they respond to you because you have intentionally went out of your way to harm them with your words, it is very difficult for me to rationalize why you didn't deserve the retaliation. In that, in and of that, I agree that there is consequences for everything that is done because everything, every action has a reaction. However, when it comes to government and platforms, it's harder for me to not see those things needing to be open for as the government has no stake in in restricting those freedoms because they're the ones that were the body that gave them in the first place. And as a government, they are made of people and would, by extension, still enjoy the benefits of that freedom as well. So there is a mutually assured level of advantage for everyone to have access to those things no matter what race, creed, color, etc., that anybody would be, orientation or otherwise. I think that there is a overarching need to create these areas of sanctuary from antagonistic speech of any kind. And I... I personally think that they are quite pointless in and of themselves because they don't they don't prefer any uh, I'm sorry they don't proffer any uh, actual safety in and of themselves. I think that they're just used as a way to circumvent the need to hear a dissident opinion or perspective or data to something that you believe. Well, I agree that every person needs to be able to have their own opinion and their own philo- philosophical bent. I think that, it, especially in current times, most people's philosophical per- philosophical perspectives tend to be pretty hollow. And I feel that is more to do with the fact that they've never been given any kind of friction to what that they believe and what is what this creates is a paradigm where people don't want to be disputed in any meaningful capacity they want their reality to be concrete static and are you saying that these folks are they hate the idea of their ideas being challenged Yes. Or at the very least, question. Okay, fair enough. But it goes more than that. 
they hate the idea they hate their ideas being challenged because in their belief any person who is challenging them then the opposite viewpoint of it is inherently evil this is something that they've either learned on their own or were taught in some capacity by some kind of guardian or some kind of teacher who rather than allowing them to learn to defend their position and create an actual paradigm where conversation can be had and mutual understanding can be uh, created, there is this overarching need to press your philosophy onto other people, molding them into your own image because you, what you think is absolute. It's a philosophical belief that there are actually several uh, European nations uh, aspire to from what I heard, from what I hear. They have a very absolutist viewpoint of everything. And any contra any contradiction to that is anathema to uh polite discourse and the bleed over into the younger generations because honestly I've never had this personal problem with older people and people around my age bracket within you know within five years or five or ten years of myself so I don't know when this occurred specifically but it's definitely something that has to do with education there's this, well, there's this constant need to have uniformity with, with consensus rather than just allowing uniformity to form through compromise and discussion. And the, the, the and both sides are no longer operating from a sincere perspective. So what you have is this really murky discussion pool that doesn't ever actually solve anything because rather than uh -huh. continue to press against each other to create a compromise situation one is merely slinging insults and allowing buzzwords and uh, um, propagandistic viewpoints to men to mold and shape the conversation to the point where there is no tenable response in allowing people to actually meet in the middle. Everything feels intentionally vitriolic for the per for whatever purpose that holds, I personally don't know. So basically from both sides it looks like the argument is not necessarily trying to at least the goal has changed. It's no longer about trying to meet a consensus and trying to understand the other side of the argument but rather it is a goal the goal has now changed to you must triumph over your opponent no, uh, uh, triumph over the one who disagrees under any circumstances because we've seen from all sorts of different like you said the conversation is no longer it's no it's no longer a clear open and honest discussion but rather both sides try to manipulate through uh, dishonest means to try and win to win favor over the audience, whoever that may be. Well, if you look at any kind of if you look at any kind of debate structure in high school and college, 
that is the general end goal regardless. But the, uh, the issue at hand ends up being is that there's no real debate anymore. What ends up happening is there's a considerable, the, the, the back and forth starts traditionally, but instead of things moving and progressing and shifting as normal conversations would, there's this over there, there's this overbearing need to just completely and utterly torpedo the entire process as it stands allowing things to stand in this weird conversational limbo where no one ever actually gets to a gets to an understanding or conclusion just allowing for things to stay nebulous so that both sides can can sp- can spin their webs as they as they want without fear of having to deal with things such things as facts or data Allowing them, words, to, allowing them to continue manipulating consensus in ways that are completely and utterly toxic to a to an open and, and open-ended conversation. Steamroll or be steamrolled. Essentially. And I understand debates can get heated, but in most cases, I don't see a reason for things to not play out the way they should. But things definitely in but especially in internet discourse come to blows way quicker than they honestly should. And it's been something that has happened for as long as I've used the internet in any meaningful capacity. There doesn't seem to be any want to have a real conversation. And there's a number of reasons to why that occurs. One nuance dies to, to, to the internet because you cannot possibly be aware Without, without them articulating it to you directly, what a person's intention is with a use of innuendo or sarcasm or different speech patterns or various other things that may either be culturally specific or specific to a type of conversational method. So what you have are a bunch of people groping in the dark using you know text at each other and, they, and they're both believing that all the other side is using it for ill purposes even if that isn't the honest to god reason that that thing that's actually occurring the everyone starts at a level of indifference that shouldn't even be the case especially when dealing with family or friends or at least acquaintances that you have a passing understanding of and have at the very least have had you know at least a few words with in real life there there, there's no decorum within the internet spectrum without going and using really large amounts of speech pattern that is over the top. Everything that you have to do has to be over-exaggerated to the point where there is no way that the person could not come to the same conclusion that you are trying to create. And, it, dil- and it, dilutes, it dilutes the conversation to the point where there's no point in having it at the end of the day. Fair enough. You mean romanticized language, right? No, it's more just talking about how it's more it's more in the fact that you're talking about using being very ham fisted with the way that you're talking. Like you are actively saying that you are kidding or you are attempting to ensure that the person is aware that you're sarcastic by including a a parenthetical mark that states that you're being sarcastic 
or overuse of emojis to try and ensure that people know that you're not being intentionally uh, antagonistic. It's it's ah. it's the it's the side effect of internet culture as it is, but it's more it's much more um, it, it dilutes the effectiveness of it. Whereas if I was having a conversation with somebody in real life, I never have to worry about them not understanding my intention, especially if I'm using the correct social cues and what what I would perceive as you know a specific type of sarcasm. It, it the the methodology is completely divorced from what real real conversation is like in the internet space. Okay, yeah, that actually that actually makes sense. Fair enough. And what ends up happening is, and I'm not saying that there isn't people, there aren't people who don't intentionally, you know, break out the word knives in in internet and intentionally cheese people off. But with the amount of stuff that's in place, and the param and the and the security measures and such, it's very difficult for you to not understand when somebody's intentionally poking you to get a response out of you that may be negative. Maybe it's just me. I can pick up on those sort of things pretty quickly when someone is in, is pressing buttons on the internet. The concept of trolling is something that I've been aware of and and the methodology has always been in place. It just takes, a, it just takes a few bars of text to really understand when someone is intentionally trolling somebody. And the funny thing is, is as a person who is aware of those things, even when you explain it to the person who's being targeted, they still don't get the point that there really is no point to the conversation that they're having. They're either being talked to in circles or they're trying, or the person is intentionally driving them into a, logical fallacy where they will they will verbally hit a wall i find it fascinating from an observational standpoint but at the same time if you're never informed or 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 made to understand that those things are occurring you'll never your 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 first response is to become defensive and and over critical of what's being said and take it as serious when even if it's not Fair enough. I take it you took that experience from dealing with assholes all your life. I know I would. If that was the case. <laughs> well, I mean, sarcasm in real in real conversations is something that you just figure out as you as long as you're having real verbal conversations with people. You can tell by body language. You can tell by inflection. Those things aren't difficult to figure out from speech pattern. When it comes to internet, it's a lot more muddy. Being able to figure out that kind of stuff, you have to figure out the way someone is ta- someone is verbalizing on a text level to be able to figure out the deeper emotional meaning of what they're trying to accomplish. Because once somebody realizes that they they can get your goat on the internet, they're not going to stop until you one give them the reaction that they want, which possibly is more negative, or two s- just ignore them. Yeah. That's actually that's actually a fair point. Unfortunately, the, the, these trolls are basically the equivalent of a, a fisherman. They're just waiting for that bait, and they're hoping that you take that bait. I've gone back and forth with people online that, that have actively thought I was being a, being antagonistic, and I honestly wasn't attempting to troll. So you know, I had to use emojis and 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 over the top. Uh, text pattern 
to make them understand that at the end of the day, I personally wasn't attempting to besmirch or attack a position that they were holding. I was honestly just making a statement. Now, and, and, and within that, within that paradigm, I did come to a consensus with that person, but it takes a lot more time than it would if I was doing so in, in, uh, in, in real life. And I think we're, we're do you think, go ahead. Do you think pride has anything to do with that sort of response and type of thinking? Because I feel like uh, where people can feel challenged or, or they feel offended for is because they may have, uh, they may feel an overly sense of pride of the knowledge that they have and, just being challenged of it offends them, even if it's mere, merely genuine discussion being made. It really depends on where they acquired that knowledge. If it's something that they... Yeah, maybe they studied it. If it's something that they themselves have acquired over time and they feel like they are personally being attacked because they've acquired that knowledge, I can see Pride taking a step in on that one and making it so that they kind of do the lockdown thing and don't feel compelled to reciprocate a conversation because of it. I think ultimately it's, le- it, it, it's more of a 60, 40 split though. It's 40% pride. It's 60% obstinance. In most cases, I think people just don't feel comfortable having their, having their personal bubble attacked in any meaningful capacity. And that's what ends up creating this, need to clamp down on the open the, the open market of free speech because any attempt to you know, wobble wobble their personal space creates a sense of distress for individuals who don't have the built up personal calluses to be able to understand when someone is being intentionally antagonistic or is genuinely trying to create a conversational space where mutual understanding can be accomplished. It's a, it's, isn't that basically the antithesis of, isn't that basically the antithesis of, you know, mutual understanding, respect and acceptance, because all that just sounds like um, the complete opposite where, you know, it's all about trying to build up, you know, echo chambers of, of stagnant knowledge. Yeah. But if you don't believe that what you're doing is incorrect because there's, you don't let contradictory actions or thought processes enter that you're going to have that situation occur. It's it, sometimes it springs up naturally because of, because people aren't given to want to deal with dissident voices or a larger group doesn't want to deal with dissident voices. The issue at hand with the internet specifically is that the internet allows for people to create these areas of, of the the cyberspace uh, landscape and shape as they see fit. And it's merely just a byproduct of that market. It's not something that is intentional in that regard. If it's if it has to do with some specific type of interest, those groups pop up in general. And when you've acquired a specific amount of people who all have shared the same consensus, it happens naturally. 
nobody goes out of their way unless they have an intent to create something with that kind of paradigm for that kind of stuff to occur. Like-minded people will always be drawn together. What creates the friction is having an outside X factor that ends up bursting that bubble to an extent. It needs to be done to a, po- to, to a point, but I think what ends up occurring is that the constant shaking of those branches, so to speak, cheeses off the occupants a lot more than it creates dialogue because the occupants have no interest in going outside of that comfort zone, creating these weird, weird little, as you call them, stagnant safe spaces that nobody feels like ever actually talking about something outside of that paradigm. It's a yes man scenario to, to, to a nauseating degree. If all you want is people to just agree with you, you can have the voices in your head do that pretty comfortably without ever having to get other individuals locked into some kind of TOS agreement on a website. Well, the thing is, is that I do call it stagnant pool because they are, they are essentially pools of ideas that just simply won't grow in the most ironic sense. Uh, these, are, these are ideas that simply refuse to grow. There is an old, there's a saying from a uh, specific person. Um, I'm sure you'll, you'll get the, I'm sure you'll get it there. It is important to draw wisdom from many different places. If we only take it from one place, it becomes rigid and stale. Understanding others, the other elements and the other nations will help you become whole. And the whole point behind that is that the idea of having wisdom being drawn from all sources of knowledge rather than just keep sticking with one is the only way a person can grow. This is why – and it's shown that through different aspects of our culture and our lives from cooking to chemistry to agriculture to architecture. It's everywhere you see where we combine different experiences, different aspects of knowledge that creates a wholesome new, wholesome new experience that further increases our knowledge ever more so. This is why we have different um, this is why we have different uh, places of knowledge, because if we only needed, if we could only need or use one, then it becomes over, it becomes overly stagnant as time goes on. And we never, this is, this is why medieval history is so considered, is considered the dark ages because knowledge was overly stagnant. Because there was so little to share, there were so few ways to share and to share knowledge amongst one another that it became that, that it was difficult for us as a species to develop faster. It wasn't until what we considered to be the dawn of the Renaissance age is where we started accelerating our our growth and expand our knowledge as a result. Well. If you contrast that with, the, with with modern times, and I'm talking about within the last 20 to 30 years, the way that we can assimilate knowledge and wisdom is much, is legions 
is miles, light years ahead of where we were in the in the Renaissance period. And I think we, what what we've created True. as a paradigm, uh, at least by my observations, we're so inundated with knowledge that unless it's presented directly to us, it might as well just be empty words on a in a book or on a website. We're literally drowning of thirst is the best way to describe it. There, there's, there's no, there's no specific. Yeah, we if you are not, if you're not compelled to have to, to learn in any meaningful capacity, because it's all there for you, whenever you feel like dining to look at it, what's compelling you to do it. Ambition dies when you are not even when there's no energy expelled to go and seek out the things that you want. That's the problem with having an, an economy and a and, and a and a a knowledge pool so vast that it's very difficult for even the most you know nine to five person not to be able to just pick up their phone and look directly into the internet to see anything that they want involving anything. As that 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 makes a you make a wonderful point there. So in this particular day and age, it's not about whether or not the knowledge is there for them to explore, it's whether they choose to actually take part in the pursuit of that knowledge. And they choose instead to be ignorant of that, of that knowledge, whatever they may be, whatever maybe it may be, whether it's their biases or their, or their personal, uh, no, actually their personal biases. Oh, it's exactly that. And you have, and when you have a large group of people, and I'm talking countries worth of people who don't feel compelled to go out and better themselves with the knowledge because it's all there whenever they feel like it, it's literally ignoring the fact that you have an, a finite amount of time on this world to be able to learn all of the things that you have access to because it's always at your fingertips. If you can constantly keep kicking the can down the road about learning a specific, you know, a specific topic or a specific trade or a specific discipline, you're going to keep doing it. The, the, the fire that's nor that normally is lit under people's posteriors is not there anymore. And I speak from experience in this because I, I felt that way in a lot of situations, especially when it comes to older generations for me. A lot of people that I have uh, that that I personally had helped in one way or another, just trying to explain to them because they ask really easy questions. It's really easy questions to me. It's not easy questions to them. In my head, I think of everything that I would need to answer to as something that I go onto a search engine and look up because I I, I have an entire computing system outside of my person that I can call upon to bring forth any aspect of human knowledge to my, to my screen in front of me to them. It feel it might as well be a mystical artifact in my hand, not because it's tech technology is scary to these people in and of itself. It is the fact that they personally had, have the, the want and the hunger to go and find it themselves. And it feels disingenuine to them personally 
to have to just use something like Google or Bing or whatever search engine you use to find anything that you could possibly want. And in and of that paradigm, it creates this lull in conversation and creates this weird unintentional clamping down of the, of the, the speech environment, because if everything's already been said, why would you need to have these conversations? We've already had these conversations. You, you're, you're rehashing old, old vulgar ergot. We don't need to talk about this stuff. It's old. It's la- yesterday's news. This constant need to keep sh- shifting forward with knowledge and information creates this weird detachment from the need to articulate it to other people. It's also the reason why you see a lot of people who rely heavily on uh, specific YouTube personalities as a way to digest complex interpersonal thought processes, political tropes, information in general. We specifically have fallen into this weird slump where we don't want to seek out the information anymore because it's too easy to find. And within that, we've created a situation where it's too easy to ignore. Why would we want to listen to other people yell at us if we don't have to? So it creates a paradox of sorts. We don't want, we don't want to find the knowledge, even though it's there. It's literally, button, it's literally a click away. But we have essentially made ourselves completely apathetic into acquiring the knowledge ourselves, but are more than willing to let somebody else do it and force feed us that information. It's created um, a weird weird information food trough scenario where unless it's given to us by a specific mouthpiece, it's it's not worth anything to us. And I find that that's, that you that creates the narrowing of a lot of a lot of knowledge pathways for people because unless somebody of that stripe tells them or or equivalent they don't you, you don't value what's being said i personally take value in anything being said by a, by another person with regards to actual reciprocal conversation antagonistic even antagonistic conversation to a point still has a specific value Mm -hmm. because there's obviously stressors in place am i unhappy when i'm in it in a situation like that i think everyone personally would be but how you respond to it in the conflict resolution that exists is how you will end up ultimately dealing with the society that you are in and that where that's where you have the problem that you have you have a you have a legion of people who have had everything spoon-fed to them through television, through the internet, through you know other popular culture, to the point where any meaningful need to go out to have to find it yourself is considered an inconvenience to the nth degree. And anybody who is contradictory to the already existing stagnant pond water of information that you already have access to is considered a an antagonistic viewpoint and is shunned, even if they are genuinely just trying to have a conversation. 
and it makes it so that having any kind of dialogue about any kind of topic that has a specific level of friction ultimately will only lead to lead to breakdown and arguments that lead nowhere as i said before fair enough that actually it's a well-equated uh it's statement. when you when i've been watching this all unravel since i've been heavy into youtube and a lot of the youtube con uh, youtube conversation spheres Especially in those especially during the days when those drama channels were making a great deal of money do, and money and influence doing this kind influence. of stuff where they're pressing a specific viewpoint and doing very little to articulate the opposite side because they don't feel they aren't they don't feel compelled to do so. You create a legion of people who will only ever listen to your side of the story no matter what and it it, and it muddies the it, and and it muddies the muddies the water so badly at the end of the day, with regards to those particular conversations. That why would you ever want to have dialogue with any with that person or any of their followers, because you understand that they're never going to actually meet you in the middle. It creates a sense of helplessness in conversation, because the person just believes what they believe, and they absolutely refuse to ever see anything outside of that paradigm. Yeah, they become overly stubborn to the point of. It's a type of zealotry. Of you have a, you have people who have gone to the point where, if they were if they were crusaders on a battlefield, you'd be terrified of them, because they've literally let their they literally let their beliefs oh, subsume yeah. who they are, and if they ever actually had any kind of. There is no wrath quite like that. I mean, my bad. The quote is, "There's no, there is no wrath quite like but that yeah, of the righteous." And the problem with that ends up being is that those people aren't always right, even if they are being righteous. No, of course not. We've seen that. We've seen that time and time again throughout history. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what cause you follow. It's that the actions that you commit, you will ultimately be seen in a darker, in a darker uh, light to those who inflict those atrocities upon you're you're evil in someone's book and you are not good in every book and you being blind to the perspectives of those you for whom you destroyed isn't going to change that absolutely and i think ultimately as we progress forward into further into the the, the 2020 era there is going to become a breaking point for the free the free the freedom of thought market and free speech mar- a free speech environment as a whole because when you have have a situation where the town the, the town square as it stands that is that is defined as the free speech environment where we all dwell has been co-opted to a level by the internet, you are going to have a significant push and pull against this co-opting to either open that field much more to a larger range of philosophical beliefs, or you're going to end up creating even more 
brain bubbles where only specific philosophies are going to be allowed to exist across the entirety of the cyber uh, of the cyberspace is uh, the cyberspace uh, perspective. And that honestly is w- where I'm much more concerned at this point. I've never felt worried when it comes to freedom of speech in real life, because within the concept of freedom of speech, you also have the, the you also have the countervailing uh, check and balance of the social contract. You're not going to go out of your way to say something negative to somebody to get a rise out of them because there is a social there. There is a contract in place unspoken that we're all just trying to get through our lives. And politeness is something that should prevail when you get to the digital when you get to the digital environment. Those kind of go out the window. So the clampdowns that have occurred have honestly been a response within the concept of social construct for the social contract to be instilled in within the internet without understanding that that platform of conversation doesn't adhere to the same paradigm as real life conversation. Okay. Fair enough. So if, but what, what if that's what we're leading to? What if that's the road that is being uh, taken? Because let's get this straight. There are people who do truly they they have blurred the line, the dip between reality and the Internet to the point where they almost are just as zealous on the Internet as they are at home. In the, the real the problem ends up being is that there is a certain level of expectation within the construct of real life versus the Internet. A lot of younger people who do a great deal of their conversing and political conversations on the internet have this belief that what they're doing in the internet is going to translate over to real life. And it's been seen on both sides that that is not even remotely the case. They also don't have the strength of the strength of will and the strength of body to be able to back up a great deal of what they were doing on the internet in the real paradigm. Hence, why a lot of them shun the real shun real life a lot harder okay. and prefer to stay within the medium of the internet because it's all they know. As far as they're concerned, the real life is where they go and they get their food and it get they bring it back to their computer or their phone. And they sit there and continue to be, you know, stronger on that platform rather than in real life. It's a byproduct of the way that we have digitized the majority of our existence. If there's no need to go out and fight, why wouldn't you just do it on the Internet? It's so much easier to do that kind of stuff, at least in that in that marker. And if somebody says something that you disagree with or is is triggering to you you can simply just make them go away in real life. That person exists and the effort to make that person go away in real life is much more bells and whistles than it would be in the internet space where you can hit a t- two buttons and that person stops existing on your time. Would you fair? Uh, would you consider cancel culture to be an exception though? Because those were indeed, those are, those are indeed moments where, 
something that either happens on the internet, such as being accused falsely of certain things, and then there are real life consequences that happen uh, shortly after that affects their lives in re no in reality rather than that of the internet. Now I'm gonna assume, I'm gonna go ahead and play it out like that is Steph more likely just it's just the outlier, so that's why I would say would you agree or my apologies would you say that it's the exception and not necessarily the rule? It's difficult. I'm going to say it's the exception because the percentages aren't that great enough for there to be a marked impact i think the effects of that of that particular situation are much more affected to a specific level of popularity and notoriety for the people who are affected by it not to say that it couldn't happen to your your average everyday person in 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 real life but the more the, the more substantial effects are aren't seen on a larger scope if that changes or there's more situations that pop up where notable exceptions occur and it's a larger percentage of the population at, at after that then i would go out of my way to say yes it's no longer the outlier but at state at current statement it is absolutely the outlier Fair enough. And I agree. Those things tend to tend tend to be less about freedom of speech and more about it, it's personal, vendetta. Ven- yes, there, personal beef. I would say there tends to be there there tends to be underlying reasons for those things to occur or for others to make them happen beyond a beyond a genuine need to bring someone to justice. Because if that were the case, no, absolutely. Yeah, because if that were the case, more. that the individual who's been targeted, especially if it was something that might have been criminal, would there would have been charges pressed against that person. They wouldn't have just been paraded out into the public, into the digital public square, and and had everything stripped away from them. And the way that the way the way things work, especially with regards to businesses, they're very reactionary to anything that may occur, especially with people who are within their employ so there's very little there's very little that compels them to ever really care that they have to cut someone off or detach someone from their from their services because they lose very little when it's one person across something no matter unless that person is making them a substantial amount of money and losing them would be detrimental to their business model that person is just as expendable as every other person as far as this, but as far as general freedom of speech is concerned, my ult, my ultimate viewpoint on its erosion of late is a perpetual need for the need to shift the overarching goal of what speech is ultimately supposed to be and what it encompasses, and a, a need to ensure that dissident voices aren't allowed to say anything. Because of an un, because of an overlying an underlying fear of what that may bring out in the larger populace, and that all, and that personally feels completely and utterly counterintuitive to the way our society should function. Because if you were smart, 
your objective at the end of the day would be to allow these dissident voices to say what they need to say and allow allow social constructs to take place and ultimately rectify their mistakes as necessary through conversation and actual back and forth dialogue even if you personally believe it's pointless to have these conversations because they probably have already been had to an extent or another, it doesn't diminish the fact that those conversations occur and should occur. I don't care how controversial the conversation is. Agree. No. If it's something that's despicable or monstrous, then guess what? Sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. Let these people have their platform because then you can debunk and dissuade them from their current course. If you don't believe that they're, if you believe that they're some sort of, and some sort of arch enemy to society, and you constantly keep pushing them further and further into the, into the darkness, you're not, you're not trying to stop them from doing something malicious. You're just afraid of what they're going to say in contrast to what you believe. Agreed. The biggest problem with the censorship idea is that when it become when a topic becomes taboo, it only entices more and more people to read it because they have to under they curiosity has them, you know, looking into these topics. This is why we have uh, certain ideological factions that gain momentum when they when they were being um, censored. And as a result, more and more people flock because when they hear something happen and they are being told they're being sent that they're being censored for it, it leaves it some people will be driven to try and see what it is that it's so bad. And that's where and even and let's say, a small percentage, a small percentage of it, of them, might stay, might stick around, but most of them aren't even going to bother, because even even nowadays, speaking those that very ideological faction, they are far from the threat that they used to be. They just generally are very overblown by. Uh, by news networks because they often tend to think the worst of everything. So they, they do enjoy uh, inflating everything for the issue at hand with news is that there is a press to over sensationalize everything. There is a need for people to be watching what is being said rather than presenting data of course, because it's, it's because just because it desensitizes desensitizes people who watch nothing but tragedy unfold on the television. So you kind of have to blow it. You're just going to have to blow it out more and more to try and get people's attention. And as you said, data is relative is is, a, is almost objectively boring. If you're just talking about numbers, if you're talking about statistics, if you're talking about studies, that ends up being quite dull to the general populace. Therefore, they have to try and 
make it a bit more interesting. And that usually involves using underhanded tactics to try and lure viewers. Agreed. The methodology is necessary for people to cling on to a particular article or newsreel in that regard is much more malevolent in process to get that kind of get that kind of retention. And I think in a lot of cases, there's a certain amount of catering to confirmation bias to make people respond in a way that is either ideal to furthering the political and financial needs of a particular news group or to create a specific type of mob mentality that can propel a, an idea forward to get some kind of action going. And the latter isn't nearly necess- isn't necessarily malevolent in and of itself, but intention ends up being the ultimate determinant of why it, of whether or not it is bad to that extent. As I've said before, you, you have a bunch of people who have literally lived on confirmation bias for the majority of their lives because the internet provides them with everything that they could possibly want attached to their specific beliefs and expounds upon it only to a specific point to ensure that they don't go out of their way to think outside of that, outside of that knowledge pool. And because of this, you have a bunch of people who refuse to think further outside of that paradigm in fear that they're going to lose themselves in the process of acquiring new knowledge that may not be <clears throat> within the same parallels of their own specific line of thought. And that in and of itself is the reason why you have the echo chambers that you do have. If, if you're afraid to lose yourself to the to the knowledge you may acquire, then you are far too fragile as a person, and you're someone that needs that has has willingly stunned your own mental growth, and that's. Frankly, that's absurd. The, uh, the the ability, the desire to acquire knowledge should be something that's innate to everyone, because the ability to acquire knowledge and to it to to is the is the is the whole epitome of personal growth. And to deny that is to literally deny a part of you that is fundamentally better. If you're afraid that you might be influenced under a uh, under a less than favorable philosophies, then you don't trust. Then you are telling yourself that you don't trust yourself. To in charge no, to to be exposed to yourself to different ideologies. One of the key components of to have this mutual discussion is to be is to be able to hear opposing arguments and whether or not they help and shape you is up to you. You don't have to take much from the conversation. 
you don't even have to take anything more than just acknowledging that you heard the damn thing. But the but the point stands that a person should be able to that a person denying their denying the desire to acquire knowledge is to desire is the desire to not want I think to, to grow. I think to a point there is a lack and of desire to grow. And that's a huge problem. I think because all of the tr- because there is that because there is that viewpoint that there all paths have been tried already what do we do now there is this level of stagnation that surfaces from that rather than just relishing in the fact that you have access to so much understanding and viewpoints and theses and doctrinal uh, doctrinal examinations and outlines and blueprints and, and, and ad nauseum, ad infinitum, there is a bountiful amount of knowledge that we all have access to, at least within the at least within the confines of our specific country. It may be different for other places, but as far as I know, most of the first world can pretty much state state that that they have access to everything that they could possibly ever want when it comes to information and perspective and innuendo and folkways and mores, all of that stuff is all presented to them as a smorgasbord. And I think that's what's created this this level of, I don't want to call it amputation. I want to call it stunting of growth. People just don't see a reason to do that. They want to find knowledge that hasn't been found already. And within that paradigm, they're not wrong to think that way. If you have access to everything and everything that everything that gets added to that well of knowledge keeps getting bigger and bigger, and there's nothing compelling you to look into it in any meaningful capacity, you're not going to. In fact, you'll go out of your way to not do so in spite of the of the people and situations that make try and force you to do so. It's a willful ignorance that is being relished because there is so much knowledge. In, in, a world, in a world of free information, the ignorant person tends to be the most comfortable within, within, their, within, their, within their apartment complex, so to speak. And, that's, and that is fundamentally a tragedy, unfortunately. In the, in the ultimate irony, they have become the willing idiots because they would rather they would rather try to maintain face than to potentially grow and become something they even greater that they than that achieved, of their current self. They believe that they have already achieved their perfect self it's a waste to a degree. Of potential. I don't think that they personally think that. I think it's a subconscious thing. And that is and that is the ultimate slap of subconscious arrogance. That comes from this idea that you've already reached the epitome of of knowledge, despite the fact that not the the humble person will understand that it's never enough. There is always room to grow. You can never hit perfection because ultimately speaking, none of us are perfect. We can never be perfect. 
no matter how hard we try. But there is always a means to improve. We can never reach that golden platinum standard, but we can always get closer and closer. And it should be in that pursuit is where the mark of pride should come from and not simply that in the belief that you've made it already to the mountaintop. This is not a mountain that you can, you can see the peak, but you'll always be able to see what's above you little by little. And it's that what you need to focus on and rather than, rather than have this, uh, the self-righteous belief that that you somehow don't need to further expand upon your potential. It's, it's just the ludicrous. way things are right now, though. Trust me, I, I I felt that way to an extent. I'm not. This isn't something that I haven't spoken it. from experience myself. My younger years were spent were, were no, that's spent for bettering myself in any meaningful capacity as as much as I could. I would converse with people and talk of topics and things, but I personally w- was more focused on m- more entertainment attachments than I was per- trying to better myself personally. And it was a combination of things that made me ultimately choose that path. M- money being one of them. The other being just not having the, the, the forward drive in general because I never because I felt pretty rudderless for the majority of my young adult existence. It wasn't until my middle my middle my middle twenties when I started to have any kind of focus with what I wanted to do. And I know many people can say say something similar to that. And I specifically feel like it my son being my son coming into existence True. was probably part of that. But I think it much more had to do with being more intricate, intricately tied to the society that I was a part of being one of the reasons. Whereas you have a bunch of people who are in their younger 20s, middle 20s, early 30s, who still have that problem for various reasons. Now, I'm not going to tell everybody that they need to go have kids to create some kind of purpose in their life. You need to figure out what you, what you what your ultimately what your purpose ends up being, because oh, that's God, the only God. thing that you get to try and figure out throughout the entire time that you are alive is to figure out why you're here. If you come to it and if you come to a conclusion, one of two things has occurred: you've hit the end of your life because finding out your per, finding out your place in the karmic wheel of this existence is something that we spend most of our lives grappling with, or it might be something darker. Fair enough, and I think I ultimately good, going back into that 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 the topic of stagnation is the reason why why people don't feel compelled to care if free speech goes by the wayside, because as far as they're concerned, they feel it is a level of inconvenience for this for the time, because everything's already been done and said. Why would you need to say those terrible things if they've already been said at said ad nauseum? Why would you need to go and think of those terrible things if they've already been thought of and done to the point of to the point of detriment? 
because unfortunately we as a species are quite forgetful when it comes to this sort of thing, despite the fact that we may not think so, but that's how we've had horrible regimes over the, no, over the centuries and how many of their, uh, their methods were effectively the same. And this is how we get that one guy that went on a British talking show who talked about how people that, that students should no longer learn about world war II because it's tragic. And it's, if there was anything, any moment in history that people should absolutely learn it's the greatest conflict mankind has ever had and how their country the was involved a lot in it. of people. If they were never given to understand that human beings are violent creatures inherently and that the, the fruit of that violence is war in most cases, they end up creating a, a society of people who are never prepared for the rigors of war when it inevitably comes for them and whatever version that that may occur. I'm not saying every person should be, you know, harassed and bullied throughout their entire life, but if they're never taught how to deal with specific levels of tension no. and friction and come to a resolution within those conflicts, then they aren't that one, their family and their and their education system has taught them nothing of value, and has failed them irrevocably. And two, it is it, it they do themselves a disservice for not going out of their comfort zone and attempting to find out how things operate outside of the the, the belief structure that they already have have been stuck with for the majority of their lives. I feel it is there. I feel it is a failing of the collegiate education system that people aren't free thinkers anymore in that in that capacity. It's the most ironic thing of all time because while while primary and sec while primary and secondary schools are usually there to teach you the common the, the common core aspects of general education, it should have been the 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 colleges and universities that should had should have had the uh, the the populace be free to choose and expand their minds on however way they want to, but it just seems to follow a very a very opposite trend where there seems to be indoctrinated on only a single uh, philosophy, and that's a very no matter which way you look at it, it. That's a very concerning uh, I agree. reality that's coming to unfold. I absolutely agree. And I think what ends up having what what ends up occurring and what needs to occur is more what I should say is that your collegiate professors need to be held to a higher standard when it comes to creating free thinking individuals. It just needs to occur. They, like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you cannot press, if, if you as a teacher cannot be called upon to go beyond the basic curricula to ensure that the people who are you are teaching 
at the very least have, have are, are compelled to ask further questions about the reality that they're a part of, then you failed. You just have. I know that sounds harsh, but I just can't think of any other way to look at it. If you want, le- if you want all, if you want lemmings to walk off a cliff, and that was your intent to no, begin with, then, then I can't really argue with it. I don't. I, I personally think it's completely and utterly ridiculous that you'd ever want uniformity in that regard as a college professor. Primary and secondary, it's a bit more gray in because that regard. I guess maybe the it's great because it's because the idea is general education, not it, you're not teaching these kids to think alike. You're just prepping them with the very basics. So on the so on the grounds that when they do pursue whatever they want to pursue, they have the very basic skills to acquire that desire through hard work and determination. That's the whole point of it all. But college is supposed to be the ability for you to expand your mind and be able to freely acquire the knowledge of your choosing and be able and be able to swim and share the knowledge you acquire with others. But have but the idea that's been apparently uh, risen to surface is this uniform style, as you have put in it, of, uh, of education where it seems to only favor a specific ideology and nothing more. And if, if we want to play devil's advocate, they probably, they probably believe true without, you know, with, I don't know what they have to back it up, but the very least they are, they seem to believe that they're, that what they teach is truly the right way to teach and thus the necessity of teaching anything else is detrimental in the growth of the uh, of their students and clearly if that's the if that's what they think then they have forsaken the pedigree that they have as professors because that's not at all how that's not at all the point of of being an educator. Swinging back to the 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 overarching conversation we've been having, in summary, at the very least, I think the way we I think the way we have freedom of speech in its current incarnation is much more tenuous than it was. I would say even 20 years ago. Hell, I'd say even 30 years ago at this point, because like, I, I don't want to even include the 90s. The 90s were weird. It, that it, I always go, I always, off subject, always thought the 80s were the weird era, but <sighs> apparently they were just it's par fine. for the course compared to the 90s. Um, as, anyway, as you were. The, the the significant clamping down of things, I think, has been a long time coming. Many would say that it's been happening since the 90s. I want to say that shortly after 9-11 is when the most significant changes were implemented, even if, even if they weren't, even if their impact wasn't felt 
until much later as it, at least in the United States, everywhere else. I, it, 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 it all feels systematic. I, I, I personally couldn't tell you in, in those particular regions, how those would all play out. My own, this is my own personal perspective on where I pers- where I live and the region that I, I dwell in. It's, Something that I said, there's going to be, there's going to be a breaking point that's going to occur because as it stands, there's been this slow boil effect that's been happening with regards to social media and freedom of speech. And, and I think, I think one of two things is going to occur. The the frog, the frog is going to die in the slow boil or it's going to jump out. There's really that's really the only two directions this that, that this goes, and with how everything's playing out, I have more faith in the former than the latter. But I mean, this this reality has all been about it is very much about hope, and I and a lot a lot of people like to believe hope against hope in that scenario. So who knows? If I want to be optimistic about things, I would like to believe that. At one point, this onslaught, well, can we really call it an onslaught? Fair enough. Uh, this onslaught will event, will eventually cease solely on the grounds that perhaps the, the, um, the silencing, it's more to say, of, of, of certain individuals will perhaps at the very least open their eyes to how critically important the freedom of speech can really be. But if we really want to be cynical, I'm like, it's hard, to, it's hard to dispute that is this going down a slippery slope? Because it always starts that way. It always starts something minor that people don't generally think it's a big deal. And then bam, before you know it, what we feared the most was happening, but that's because we one side did nothing because they didn't think it was going to happen. The other and and the other side did nothing because they felt if they did do something, they would be purged. That fear definitely is the is the compelling factor for a lot of people. So hard to argue with you. Yeah, unfortunately, we've seen it from history. So I, 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 I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you lovely folks are, not, are getting tired of me mentioning history at this point. You, you're probably like, I get it, I get it, I get it. All right, <laughs> I, I, I won't bore you with any more. <laughs> uh, but hey, very grateful that you tuned in this far. If you happen to go listen through it all. Greatly appreciate you coming. Feature in next week. I'm sure we'll have a brew that's well worth your time. One that will satisfy that itch you've been scratching. And one that will give you that intoxicating enlightenment. Either that or I find a more generic topic to discuss that won't necessarily have rifles being pointed at me in the middle of the night. All right, so <clears throat> you can find our podcast on the Anchor app itself if you have it. Um, the Anchor app also publishes two 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Breaker, CastBox, and a few choice others. Um, if any of those platforms are defunct, obviously ignore them, but the major ones are Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. Uh, you can contact us individually if you wish. Um, I am at Punk Toast. I'm sorry. I am Punk Toast on Twitter. There's no at there. Um, you can also contact me via Instagram, also at Punk Toast. Go ahead, uh, Harma. What's your what's your shtick? You can find me as the Ragnarok Knight on Twitter as well. It has been a pleasure discussing with you tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all. And uh, this has been Captain Mediocre's Haunted Tiki Bar. Please join us next time at the bar where we will serenade you with more rants and insanity as we often do. Keep your wits about you and have your booze ready. Cast off, friends.